Hi, this is Scott Mann, and you're listening to the Permaculture Podcast, a listener-supported program. This episode is the second half of a two-part Susquehanna Permaculture Roundtable discussion that took place at my friend Seppi's house on Wednesday, June 3rd, 2015. Since Charles Eisenstein had to leave after the first recording, this piece features Ben Weiss and Dave Jackie as the panelists, and includes several members of the live home audience joining in to share their thoughts and questions on the topics at hand. With a mixture of humor and honesty, we continue talking about how to become right with ourselves and others in order to find and build community and create a right livelihood. Give this one a listen and I'll join you afterwards with further thoughts, updates, and a class announcement about a course that Dave Jackie will be teaching in the near future. Now then, on to the conversation. Ben, Dave, everyone who's here for the second session of the second Susquehanna Permaculture roundtable discussion. I'm here with Ben and Dave. Charles Eisenstein has left us. And I just kind of want to jump into this. I'm left feeling kind of angry after that first conversation because of all the things that it points out to me that are kind of systemic issues that we need to work on. And from my own personal journey, before we started recording, we were talking about the gift economy. And that led you to some thoughts, Ben, if you could go ahead and share those with us. Well, during the break between now and the last recording, we've been hanging out here at Seppi's house, having lunch, you know, with all the the good folks who were here. And there was a lot of conversation about an article that I wrote a few weeks ago that basically explained the difficulties that I see for young permaculturists or people in similar fields to be able to make a living. And that there also appears to be, again, as, as Charles mentioned in the first taping earlier this morning, there are many, many well-wishing onlookers who have huge amounts of resources and there have been predictions in books and podcasts and YouTube videos and documentaries, you know, for a few decades now that the wholesale global degradation of ecology would start putting pressure on the global economy to shift in the direction of supporting the rehabilitation of the ecology. And I see no evidence that that's happening. And even in my young life, like mentors and teachers have said to me, yeah, in a few years, everybody's going to want to hire you to do this. People are going to be making land available to you. None of that's ever happened. And yet what has happened certainly is an explosion of interest in permaculture, environmentalism, related fields, an explosion of awareness. And so the well-wishing onlookers that I mentioned before, there are so many more of them, but it's like they're sitting on the sideline with these massive amounts of resources. And those of us who are actually on the field trying to make the changes need access to those resources. And what was so profound to me about the last thing that Charles said is that um, he echoed a realization that I have come to in the last month from a handful of conversations with the close colleagues of mine that, yeah, nobody wants to invest in this stuff because there's no way for them to make money off of that investment. And friends and colleagues who I've had for 10 years who've had these, what in my opinion were ridiculous fantasies about some gajillionaire dropping a chunk of money on us so we could do what we want to do, like, I think maybe those fantasies are not actually that ridiculous. Whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know, because I just said I'm kind of sick of predictions. But it does seem that that's perhaps 
um, what needs to happen. Dave, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I want to go back to your anger, Scott, and go back to that inner landscape piece and see where that leads. Because there's a book, I, there's a couple books I highly recommend people read. Uh, and I was talking a bit about the emotions in the last session. And uh, the first book is called Emotional Genius by, I want to say Kat Anderson, because we were just talking about Kat Anderson, but it's, that's not her name. And I'm totally blanking on her name now that I have Kat Anderson's in my way. But Emotional Genius and uh, the thrust of that book is, unfortunately, it's out of print, but you can get, she's got a follow-up book whose name I'm also blanking on at the moment. The thrust of her work is that the emotions are a source of genius for us. It's not about emotional intelligence. It's beyond that. It's that when we cut off our emotions, we cut off our genius. When we, we repress our emotions, we repress our genius. When we hold our emotions at arm's length, we hold our genius at arm's length. And as I said earlier, the emotions are an incredibly sophisticated, millions and millions of year old, years old information processing and management system and storage system that evolved with the mammals. All mammals have a limbic system in the brain. And what the author says is that anger arises when our boundaries have been violated. And it gives us the awareness of what the violation is and gives us the energy we need to repair the violation. So I don't want to turn this into a therapy session, Scott, but you know, your anger is giving you information about you in relation to your environment. And that's information you need to take in. And the only way to take that information in about from our emotions is to actually feel them in the body, to actually have the emotions. <laughs> and my experience has been that when I allow myself to have my emotions, which I'm still not as good at as I would like to be because I'm a human male in Western culture, you know, and I've been trained out of having my emotions in an easy, free-flowing way, which pisses me off because that's a boundary violation, that when I can roll around my emotions enough and feel them in my body well enough that I usually, while I'm rolling around in that pile of uh, SHIT, that I'll roll around and I'll feel, feel something hard underneath my back or under my knee or something, and it turns out to be a gem. And that gem is an insight. And once I take that gem and hold it and own it, that insight, the emotion goes away because it's done its job. And then the insight is available whenever I need it. When I'm in a situation, when I need that insight, it arises spontaneously in my awareness and I don't need to have the emotion around that anymore. I just have the insight and I can act in accord with what I learned by having the emotion. This is fundamental, basic, what it means to be human. And when I talked about ontology earlier and what are valid ways of knowing, the emotions are a very, very valid way of knowing and gaining information about ourselves in relation to our environment and ourselves in relation to ourselves because we are complex beings and we have parts that have different motivations inside of ourselves and they get pissed at each other and whatever. All that goes on inside too and that's confusing as hell. But how does this lead back to what we're talking about? You were talking, Ben, earlier about fear 
And Western culture's relationship with gifts is very bizarre. And so people talk about the gift economy. And, you know, I haven't read Sacred Economics, so I can't speak for, speak t- toward, you know, how Charles would talk about the gift economy. But I do know that in the 80, 1980s, a magazine called Coevolution Quarterly had a whole series of articles on the gift economy, which I read and changed my perspective tremendously. And basically what that series of articles from anthropologists and stuff led me to understand is that in Native cultures, at least the ones that were discussed in those articles, the gift economy and the capital economy were side by side in those cultures. They had both. It wasn't just one or the other. That's a monoculture. They had both because they served different functions economically. And you know, the term Indian giver arose from, you know, the native peoples coming, the, 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 the Europeans arriving and the native peoples coming, and they had these pipes, these tobacco pipes that were part of the gift economy. And they gave the Europeans the, the pipe as a gift to welcome them, and the Europeans put that gift on their mantelpiece. They turned that gift into a piece of capital. And in the native culture, the gift gained more value the more times it was given away. And the relationship with the person was that you gave it to and, and, and their relationship to the community was emblematic of how they treated the gift or vice versa. The, how they treated the gift was emblematic of their relationship with the people who give it to them and the people, you know, and the community who received it afterwards. And so when the Europeans put it on the mantelpiece and the gift wasn't returned and passed around the community and shared among the community, the Indians were like confused at first and they got angry because their boundaries were violated and they finally came back and demanded the pipe back. And the appearance like, what? You gave it to us. What the, you know, we're talking about a cultural clash here. And that's where the term Indian giver came from. So we have to have a clear distinction between the gift economy and the capital economy. And I think we're really confused about that in this culture because we tend to take gifts and turn them into capital. That's how, that's how Christmas is experienced in, for most of us. We give Christmas gifts and someone is supposed to give us give a gift back, and there's all this weirdness around, around. Oh, did I give enough versus what, compared to what they gave me, and you know, blah, 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 blah. But everybody in that transaction takes the gift, and it becomes part of their capital, personal ownership stash. And that's not how it used to work in native cultures, to my understanding. And the the gift economy bound people together, and the capital economy gave people autonomy. And that acknowledges the two realities, the dual reality of being a human being, that we are both individual and community. We are part of something larger, and we are autonomous. And we have to find ways to acknowledge that. And, you know, we live in a market-based, individualistic, autonomous, capital accumulation economy that assumes that every person who is born on the planet is a profit-making enterprise. That's the basic assumption of capitalism even though that doesn't describe me. I'm not a profit-making enterprise. I'm here to be of service, but I'm trying to make a living enough to keep being of service in this capital economy. And it's been really hard. And I've gotten, I've gotten shit from people about making money and selling permaculture, you know, whatever, teaching permaculture, selling my book for 55 bucks a piece when my publisher wants it for 75 or whatever, you know. It's a lot of money, I understand, but it's not that much, really. And there's so many issues tangled up in this, but I've, ta- I've said enough for a while. But that distinction of capital and gift economy, and neither one is bad. 
It says they have to be in the right place and the right relationship with each other to be functional and healthy and life-giving and supportive of people's autonomy and people's community. Coming out of that conversation and, and going through those emotions, a lot of it for me and what struck me in the closing notes that all of you shared with us was, Ben, when you were talking about fear, I've kind of reached a point where I'm not afraid anymore, but I don't, I don't know what to do next to help me find my own path. I was talking with John Darby outside about that thought of working full-time, well, then what happens to the podcast if my primary vocation is nothing but earning a dime to make that financial capital? What happens to those other forms of capital that we've discussed over the years? The experiential capital of interviewing people and building networks and being able to take care of ourselves and other inside of a, a real community where we're not hoarding, but we're sharing that we're not collecting for our own use, but we're looking at how quickly we can move these materials around to take care of one another. And I just kind of feel lost because, as Charles said, to go full circle with the three of you, was about that idea of purity and to show that it can be done, but then running into my own struggles and not knowing where to turn. And again, balance is the phrase that I keep coming to, how to find a balance between using the systems to exist and share this information to make a living while still being true to these ideas of ensuring that this information reaches as many people as possible. And that's everything that's happened to me in the last hour since we closed that first interview. And anybody who's here sitting in the audience, if you have any thoughts that you would like to share, there's a long cord on that microphone, and I'll gladly pass it to you. We can include you in the conversation or share your questions and thoughts. Though, please do let us know who you are. Hello, everybody. My name is William Padilla Brown. Uh, most everybody here has met me before, but I've been studying permaculture under Ben and Wilson since last summer. And um, when I found permaculture, it just it felt really right coming out of the Western culture, very intense, intensely. Uh, my father was a soldier and my mom deals with big com companies that control the food around the world. So I had to go through a lot of experience before I was able to accept the ideas of permaculture. But when I found it, it just it felt so right. And I was in a unique, and I'm in a unique position. I dropped out of school when I was, when I was 17. And uh, I didn't take any student loans to go to college. I took the time since I was 17 to find out what actually interested me because I had a unique experience when I was 16. I uh, had just got out of the shower and I was looking at the hair on my legs. And it's really funny because I, lo I was looking at this hair on my legs and I was like, I'm, I'm like an animal. And I had been living in virtual realities most of my life, which is uh, the thing that's very common nowadays. And I'd, I had never taken the time in 16 years to recognize myself as a living organism. So uh, moving forward with that information, I took that time to find out things that interested me, find out how I can learn to be a human. So uh, I went through a lot of experiences, uh, spiritual experiences, biochemical experiences, and expanding my mind. And then I found permaculture. So it was just very fitting. So one of the things that I wanted to do moving forward with it, and I'm actually going to be hosting a presentation this coming week called Non-Traditional Independent Education, because when I found the Permaculture Apprenticeship, I was like, this is how I want to approach my education. It's very inexpensive. It's only a few hundred dollars, whereas I know people that have taken out loans for $10,000 or more. So I'm just like, if I can take the step forward, gaining the knowledge that I need and be able to apply it right away, this is the education that I want to take. So since then, I've done mycological workshops. 
I've done more. I did a rewilding course with Wilson. Um, I'm taking a foraging course with John Darby. I went out to Arizona and I uh, took part of the Academy for Future Science Easter seminar where I got to meet physicists, astrophysicists, nuclear scientists. Um, I went to NOFA conference, the North American Farming and Gardening Conference in Saratoga Springs. And I, I did all this by setting up a crowdfunding website and getting my family and friends to donate money for me to get an education. So I wanted to uh, be able to forge new ways of people gaining an education, but then at the same time, I wanted to be able to apply that information without the normal accreditation of diplomas, degrees, and all these sorts of things, because I see the need for a new paradigm shift that this isn't the way that things need to be done anymore. And a big inspiration came from the fact that Ben and Wilson were teaching these classes from skills that they had learned outside of the systematic ways of educating yourself. So since then, I've actually quit my job three months ago. Um, I've been doing workshops teaching people how to grow mushrooms in their house uh, in the local area. And I started a mushroom business uh, just by growing mushrooms in my house and donating them to local restaurants. I gained enough appeal to start my own business. Um, and this is just my niche mushrooms but there's so many other niches that need to be filled in creating the systems that we want to see of ecological regeneration but also uh, sustainable micro industries and this is something that Scott Kellogg talks about which really uh, appealed to me uh, is building these uh, urban regenerative sustainable micro industries that push towards the future that we need to be able to operate and get the resources that we need to do the work that we need to do so before I ended I, I wanted to also note that I'll be doing another presentation called Susquehanna Homeland Interdependence Program, which is focusing on ways that a few people can initiate this paradigm shift that we need to see in our systems. I'm going to uh, take some authority to suggest that sitting in a room with like 25 people and um, that there's probably a woman here who has something really valuable to say, but we haven't heard from any of them yet. Hi, my name is Alexis Campbell. I'm from Reading, Pennsylvania, and I'm just first really grateful to be here. And it's just been a really great conversation so far. And um, the thing that came to mind while you guys were discussing this idea of being able to operate in a gift economy or operate outside of the capitalist economy, the thing that came to my mind is in my experience in Reading, PA, is that I'm very isolated there. And I'm just wondering how much proximity plays into this. Like, I think about intentional communities and like how they're doing things and is that is that a better idea is that a better format for people being able to build relationships and having like-minded people together in the same space physical space i find that i am very distant from most of my colleagues in the permaculture field and it it becomes very difficult to stay grounded in the permaculture ideals, it's it's difficult to stay grounded in systems thinking with the outside pressure of of most of the people I'm interacting with. Just kind of on a, they're they're still in the old story and they're still operating on the capitalist system. So, I guess I'm just proposing the idea of of you know, does that matter? Does that make a difference? I don't know that there are any intentional communities that I know of that are just killing it <laughs> with that idea um, or in their ability to, to really create a new story and create something that can be shared and propagated. Yeah, so that's all. Back to you, Dave. I really appreciate, Alexis and William, what you've shared. And I think there's an interesting 
lesson in some contrast there and in and the voices of all of the people who've spoken here including including scott and charles and i but you know it's like i go back again to the principles of ecology i mean if if it's true assuming it's true which i do assume i actually more than assume that humans are part of nature and therefore all the principles of natural systems apply equally to us as they do to any other natural system you know, what was coming to mind listening to each of you talk was the concepts of species niche and community niche, right? And so, William, you're talking about filling certain community niches and finding those niches and finding a niche, a community niche that works for you for what your species niche is, what, who, what your individual char- characters and qualities are. And you seem to have found that and you're thriving in that because the principle of stress and harmony would say, that when you are in, you with your species niche are in the right community niche, your needs are getting met, all your natural functions are allowed, and there are no functions forced on you that are unnatural to you, right? And you're thriving, you're doing great. Sounds excellent, you're moving ahead. Whereas Alexis, you know, you're struggling. Some of your needs are not getting met, some functions are forced on you that aren't natural to you, and sounds like some of your natural functions aren't being allowed by your context. And it's hard in your community for you to find your community niche, what your role is in that community. And if you're isolated and you're, you have a different culture, you know, it could be like, you know, in succession, in early succession grasslands, there's a bacterial-dominated soil food web. And in a bacterial-dominated soil food web, because it's bacterial-dominated, according to Elaine Ingham, the pH is slightly alkaline, at least in microsites, and the ni- and nitrogen tends to take the form of nitrate and nitrite. And woody plants tend to prefer a l- nitrogen in the form of ammonium, which is more common in fungal-dominated soils. So here you are, perhaps a shrub, a later succession species, in a grassland context, and you're struggling because you don't have the right associates, and you're looking for that. I heard you asking for that. You know, you may be, you may be not the pioneer woody species for this grassland, of Reading, Pennsylvania, right? Whereas other people have this have the species niche characteristics that make them able to adapt to the broader culture and have the ability to transform that. You know, in my case, I found myself in a time space, you know, when I took my permaculture course, I wanted to be out doing design and implementation for people, and that was my ideal. But I was way ahead of my time. The market wasn't there. I was planting rhododendrons and designing septic tank leach field systems for years, trying to do permaculture just to make a buck, try to pay my bills, you know, and I had a kid and stuff like that. So, you know, I had to go into that economy and do what I could, something close to what my niche was, my personal species niche, you know, to keep going and try and make that space around myself. And I think the answer to the questions you were asking, Alexis, is really it depends, as usual, on who you are, what your characteristics are, what's true inside of you. And it's, again, going inside and feeling your feelings are a guide to what your niche is. Where's the stress? Where's the harmony? They're going to help you know what those factors are that are going to make the difference for you and what you need, the choices you need to make for yourself, you know? And a lot of us in this time space of culture want to be in a different culture and we're not and so we're under stress and i keep seeing this meme on facebook lately you know if you feel like you don't fit into the world you're brought here to make a different one 
And so we got to use that stress, use that challenge as fuel to help us identify, you know, how to change the world to make it work for us and have the gumption to to do that. And if we don't ha- quite have the gumption, then we got to find the people that we can do that together. And at different points in our life, when th- different things are going on, maybe we can't be the point of the spear. That's a really bad analogy. We can't be the we can't be the the tip of the the, the growing root into that grassland. We have to be back behind the lines, a little bit more supported, less exposed, and then we can go back to the to the front again and 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 expose ourselves more to that. You know, it's really about us being attuned to ourselves and our context in the moment and making those choices and. You know, it also helps not to try and expect the world to be different than it is. That causes suffering, man. That's, it's hard, but, because I really want the world to be different than it is. But I'd rather actually feel the pain of how the world is than to pretend it's not and have that suffering on top of the pain that I'm feeling anyway. This is Ben again. I'd like to take this space in the conversation to go just in a slightly different direction, but I think a lot of what's been said supports where I want to go to um, yet again scrutinize and maybe uh, completely disagree with a few of the somewhat foundational opinions or philosophies of the permaculture movement. And the first one is this idea of intentional community or homesteading, the like permaculture site that you like go away to to flee from the reality that Dave just talked about. But, you know, I just heard Alexis talking about this, like, do we need an intentional community to do the things that we want to do? And I've been living in the same small city, Lancaster, you know, for my entire adult life. And I've seen so many friends come and go disillusioned with what was going on there. They wanted to go to Portland. They wanted to go to Asheville. They wanted to go way, way out you know, to the backwoods somewhere to go homesteading. And when I was younger, I thought that was really cool. But at some point I started to realize we're never going to get a damn thing done around here if nobody stays to work on it. And I'm like halfway through being a young adult, you know, my daughter's halfway raised and I still don't have the kind of community that I want because people are always going to look for that community somewhere else. And how can we possibly do good design in a place where we don't know the plants and the animals and the people and the landforms? You can do the best design in the place where your roots are, you know? Like, not just a year of observation before you do something, but a lifetime. You've been there your whole life. And you have, hopefully, access to already, maybe, hopefully. I mean, I have had some access to resources that have allowed me to circumvent some of the barriers that the uh, culture and the economy that we're all talking about we're struggling so much with. Like, I've been able to circumvent those because my family's nearby, because I do have some friends, because I know the land, I know the plants. You know, and my friend Wilson, who people keep referencing, like, we've had this conversation so many times. Should we just pick our families up and go somewhere else? And we're like... Think about, we've spent our entire adult lives learning the land here. We're going to go somewhere else and then spend another 10, 15 years learning all that. By the time we'll be, by that time we'll be, you know, we'll be middle-aged, you know, and one of my favorite mentors said to me one time, 
you will never have the amount of energy that you have now again. So you better do something real good with it. The second myth of permaculture culture that I want to get to, which is really very similar to what I was just talking about, is the idea that permaculture is a land-based anything. I referenced the essay that I wrote a couple weeks ago. It was called The State of American Permaculture, A Millennial's Perspective. And it really was a foundation for a second essay that I wrote, which really was the essence of what I was trying to get to. And unfortunately, about 10,000 people read the first one in five days, and about 500 people have read the second one in a month. And the second one is called A Need for Landless Permaculture. In the essay, I explain that the vast majority of the young people like William, who just spoke a few minutes ago, that I encounter who come to me to learn permaculture don't have access to land or the quality of land access that they have doesn't allow them to do traditional permaculture. But permaculture itself offers so many valuable skills and ways of seeing that if we stopped looking at it just as a land-based design system, it would be much more valuable to all of these young people who are coming to it for guidance who don't have the land access, who can't go away to some intentional community or go off homesteading, which is almost all of the young people that I know. And not even just the young people, but the people who are young at heart, even the older people who are realizing that they spent their whole life living in a culture that they are now disgusted with. They find out about permaculture. They come to my class. They say, I want to learn something new. But they don't have land access. They don't have savings. They don't have... They don't want to keep working the job that they've had. So we we need to get past those two ideas. They're terrible limiting factors that we are imposing ourselves and we could let go of them. There are a couple things that come to mind from that. And it's actually looking at Dave reminds me of this because it was, a, I think it was the first interview that I did with you, Dave, was around the time that I also spoke with Mark Lakeman and Larry Santoyo. The three of you together really moved my perspective from that early kind of nascent view that permaculture was about permanent agriculture. And then I started thinking about it more about permanent culture and what those questions meant and what we have to build. And it's why I've been on this kind of social permaculture kick for a long time. And it's interesting, some of the semantical arguments that I've gotten into over what permaculture means these days, or when, and I apologize to all of our rewilding friends when I use the word civilization, because coming from a sociology background, if we're going to be using language and writing and, and art and elements like that, that's a hallmark of civilization. But with what you were saying, Ben, about community elsewhere, I think about that as stemming from our cultural narrative that if you want something, just move, go to it. If you have the money, then travel. If you're young and you can, you can go do whatever you want because you're not tied anywhere. But then there's, as you advance in age within this culture, there's this idea that you're going to be rooted somewhere. But now that rooting is not because it's fulfilling, but because that's where your life is and that's where your job is. So that's where you're supposed to stay. And continuing on that idea of community with what Charles was saying earlier, and we've all touched on throughout this, is that idea of that internal work so we can get right with ourselves and in turn get right with others, that this disconnection happens because when someone asks us, how are we doing? We don't tell them. We say, oh, we're okay. Because we're so often, when that question is asked or others like it, it's just to make space until the other person can talk. There isn't a dialogue between the individuals because of that separation that we've created. And I to really build community and move forward, I think we need to reconnect and have personal intimacy, both inter and intra with others. 
and yeah, with your idea of land base, that most people live in cities now. Most of us aren't going to have land of any quantity. Or if we do go off into the hills somewhere, all the resources that are required to connect us with the things that we need, unless we're doing subsistence agriculture, which the handful of people I know who have ever done that say, it's kind of a rough life moving to if you haven't been raised that way. And it seems that these myths that you point out are really limiting to us, as you say, because of the boxes that they put us in. And we continue to think in this one direction. And yet when we have conversations like this about thinking about permaculture as anything other than a landscape design system, it doesn't foster dialogue. It creates in some ways a hostile environment where other people will try to shut it down because they haven't seen that permaculture is broader than just the land. So Dave, you're looking at me with the mic. Would you like to pick up after that long bit? Well, there's just so much. I mean, let's not forget that all of the stuff that we're experiencing has been created by design. In researching the Coppice book, I learned a lot about the history of the British commons. Coppice agroforestry was based on a commons land use model that was evolved in the Paleolithic, and it took two centuries almost for the, and the Romans tried to dislodge the Celtic substratum of commons land ownership and land management, and the Anglo-Saxons tried, and the Normans tried, and finally in the 1700s, with all the hundreds of acts of enclosure to close down the commons, they created a landless peasantry. And the destruction of the commons continues today. They're tr doing it with the internet, they're doing it with the atmosphere, they're doing it with water. You know, that this is by design. This is what Charles was talking about, about the capitalist economy is going to monetize everything. And I forget who it was, but when they can't monetize the externalities, they're gonna start, it's gonna start consuming itself, which is what we're part of witnessing and trying to respond to. This is, we're talking about societal and cultural changes that are, have been going on for thousands of years and will continue for thousands of years. We're part of a long history of the destruction of the commons. And that, the private ownership model, I mean, the, the landlord, right? Landlord, that's a medieval term, folks, right? I call myself a freelance, the people ask me if I, if, I, if I teach somewhere. I said, well, I'm freelance. That's a medieval term, folks. So much of our culture is medieval, still. It's based on that. The word villain, right? The original meaning of the word villain was a peasant who had access to common resources. And because the privateers won the cultural battle and the villains were always having uprisings, the word villain became an epithet, right? And we all buy into that because we're part of this culture. We grew up with the idea that a villain is a bad person. A villain is a commoner. Oh, commoner, you're a commoner. That's, a, that's an epithet also. The, the acculturation to the private capitalist economy with no gift economy and no commons economy is so profound. It is so unconscious. We have a lot of deprogramming to do. And we have to be patient with ourselves and with each other, please, with each other, because the word common is built into the word community. And yeah, we need a landless permaculture, but the challenge here too is that I talk about permaculture, the core strategy of permaculture is ecosystem mimicry. We're attempting to mimic ecosystem properties, principles, patterns, and processes, the four Ps, in our agriculture, 
in our social structure, in our economy, in our inner landscape, in our resource base, in every aspect of human culture. Because that's a way we remember ourselves as part of nature, is by mimicking nature. And then we say, oh, right, we already were nature. And having that land access and the direct experience of ecosystem design and management and interaction and co-creative participation teaches us and gives us direct feedback on how well we're doing applying those ideas and principles in the landscape. And then once we have that experience, we can apply that in the more abstract, challenging realms of social and economic and inner landscape design. And that's, that's, I think, one reason people lean on the land-based permaculture because it's like, it's real, it's, it's visceral, and it's the basic education all of us need as human beings to know what it is to be human as an ecological species and how do we interact? What's our place on the planet? It's central. Now, it's, it's actually, it's, it may be central. It, I'm not sure it's central. It's actually, it's actually, it's the easy way in, right? But you could get there by doing meditation and working only in the social structure because we are nature. All the principles apply. And if, you, if we just d- develop ourselves on the social side and the economic side, I'm sure, my, my guess is all the same principles of systems are going to reemerge in that exploration. But I think we're closer to it from permaculture because we're coming at it from ecology and from land-based systems. And that it's easier to make that translation into social and economic stuff from the land-based systems. But the challenge is that we're, we, we have, we're caught in all these things. We have this black-white thinking, you know, profit is bad. It's not okay to make a profit. Well, folks, if plants did not make a profit, we would not be alive. Because if they had no energy left over at the end of the year to offer to us, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be here. If they didn't have profit in seed, we wouldn't be here. If they didn't have profit in leaf and fruit and root, we wouldn't be able to eat them without destroying our base. Stuart Hill was an intellectual mentor of mine, he's still alive, he lives in Australia now, and he talked about how the four of the core values of Western culture are profit, power, progress, and product. Values are our ends, there's things we're after. And he said, what we need is to have our values, our ends, the things we're after, to be, rather than profit, nourishment. Rather than power fulfillment, rather than progress sustainability, and rather than product relationship. And if you hear those last four words, nourishment, fulfillment, sustainability, relationship, those are self-limiting. Too much food is not nourishment, nor is too little. Fulfillment is about having a purpose, and you fulfill that, and then you're done. Sustainability, obviously, is something that's got balance and limits to it, and relationship is always a give and take if it's going to be a healthy relationship. So as values, that's much better as the basis of a society than profit, power, progress, and product because the more the better on those, right? But the thing is that we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because profit is not bad. It's just in the wrong place. It's in the wrong relative location because you can't have nourishment without profit. You can't have fulfillment of a purpose unless you have the power to fulfill that purpose. We can't have sustainability unless we make progress toward that. And you can't have a relationship unless you have two things, two products or more in relationship with each other. So profit, power, progress, and product are means to those ends. But when they become the ends, then we're in trouble. And so if we start giving each other a hard time about making money, then we're going down a rabbit hole. But it's, the question is, is making money the end or is it the means to an end? It's that idea of what is money and the role 
that seems to provide a lot of conflict when money is seen just as capital that can be stored rather than as a tool that we use in order to have certain accomplishments or just as a, I forget who said it, that money just represents an exchange of energy. Well, this is the basic challenge with the way money is designed in our culture is that money is a, both a store of value and a medium of exchange. And that is part of the conflict. And that is how the scarcity of money is created. Because when you store up the money, there's no medium of exchange, so you can't have an economy. That's a, a, a structural conflict in the design of money that helps create the system we've got, where people can make and store billions and billions of dollars for themselves. They're not forced to exchange that money. That's See, that's part of the difference between the capital economy and the gift economy, because the gift economy is all about exchange. The capital economy is about storing of value, and we have to separate those two in a functional way, if that's going to work. Hello, everyone. My name is Matthew Kenny. First of all, I want to thank you, Seppi Garrett, for uh, gracing us with his beautiful home and uh, his awesomeness. My name is Matthew Kenny. I'm from Harrisburg, born and raised. These are my roots. And as Ben said, this is where I plan to establish myself. I think it's interesting, a lot of the things that Charles had to say about narrative and story and how I find myself back here after just merely traveling up and down the Susquehanna to go to school in Bloomsburg and coming back and realizing that there is no other place for me to live because I have such an established base here, whether it's physical whether it's relations, or it's just the experience and the knowledge I have of the landscape. And that brings me to my narrative here and the narrative that I'd like to create with the people that I know, the people that I don't know yet. And I guess it comes down to some of the same concerns that I have that Alexis voiced about where is that niche? Are we in the right place? Do we have access to the right resources? And... I feel like so much of that is really a gap in each other's story and our ability to communicate those with one another. Taking the permaculture course with Ben and Wilson has provided me tools of insight through those emotional upheavals and muddling where you start to ask yourselves, well, what are we looking for here? And I think we can all agree that we want the same things, we just have different words for it. And the way we communicate that to one another might be words like gift or capital or whatever it is, but that we find ourselves caught between these voices, sort of vacillating or oscillating between the two, really questioning ourselves. But it is those two voices that create a dialogue. If there's one voice, there's a monologue. And that's, well, pretty boring after a while. But I feel like we do feel conflicted because we know that there are limits. There are boundaries. We get angry because we know we've reached them and it's upset the natural order of things. And we understand that that's just not going to limit to that this time and space, but that it has ripples far beyond our own community within our planet. And that for us, a lot of the building that needs to be done is sort of a language building. Plants communicate with chemicals they communicate with water. They communicate with starch sugars. These are uniform throughout all of nature. It's a language that is geometric, that carries time and space with it. I'm not sure we have that as a human species in terms of a language, but if we could start to communicate in a way 
that emulates the biochemistry and the ecology of our systems, we could speak the ineffable, those emotions that inform us, that genius that is at arm's length or at word's length. I also think that we need to meet people where they are because so much of this language is even foreign to us and we're still developing a sense of what it means to us. And it's that very dialogue, like the ones that are having in this living room, that are giving form and shape to what those words mean to us as individuals and to us as a community. But the only way we get the meaning is by sharing it. And this comes down to this economic idea. Well, when we talk about the gift from a Western mindset, we're fixed on the object of the gift itself, where in my experience, and for what I know of it, studying anthropology, the value is in the movement of that principal item. It's in the present progressive. It's not the gift. It's the giving. And that transaction is what it is. It's an action across the distance. And when we can start to see that we're not just reaching out an arm's length, but that our words, the values that we share, can be seen as giving people understanding, hope, and last but not least, a sense of community. Because without these ideas, without these words, without this language to express any of this, we have no communication. We have no common. We don't have anything in common. And it's really interesting that, Dave, you mentioned the villain. And last week, I kind of succumbed to this, this role in realizing that my answers to people's questions often don't satisfy. And that's not my goal. In fact, I don't mean to be popular in what I say. And oftentimes, I find myself in the category of villain because what I offer is not a solution, but a painfully deep and valid question that makes people ask something of themselves. And not to quote JFK, but what can we do for one another? What can we do for the greater good? I think it's those questions that we need to start asking ourselves and we need to refine that questioning process what kinds of questions we do ask and make those questions better more refined and so to sort of to sharpen the edge of our axe before we start swinging it's like the old adage of sharpening an axe for 10 hours to chop wood for one or to chop wood for 10 hours while spending only an hour to sharpen it i think that we're so busy swinging we're about to take our own heads off and we need to ask good questions, better ones, before we start swinging in our own direction. Hi, this is Seppi. Um, I just wanted to go with this idea of, of the, not the gift, but the giving. And the whole idea of the, of the state of our situation right now being relatively dire, uh, not even relatively. So it's just a story that plays in my head over and over again as I kind of walk through this life. And sometimes I feel like Mr. Magoo with thick glasses, just kind of stumbling, having faith that the, that the beam isn't going to fall on my head or, or I'm not going to fall into the pit of concrete as I move through the construction site. And again, speaking to this, the act of giving and the situation that we're in currently. Um, and to me, the fact that we need miracles to happen. So a year and a half ago, and some of you have heard this before, but a, a year and a half ago, freshly under the the pressure of a, of a divorce and my wife had moved out and 
I was working this part-time job trying to figure out how I was going to make ends meet. And there was a gap in finances. So I cashed in all my retirement funds and, you know, paid my, my mortgage payment and my bills so that my kids and I would have a place to live. And there was this homeless guy, Andrew, that lived uh, in the alley behind where I worked and we had become friends and he had taught me a lot about being grateful. And so I, I was down to $20. I had a $20 bill in my pocket and I, I stopped in on my way into work to see how he was doing and he was sick. And so I didn't have anything to give him except for that $20. And I didn't have, I remember thinking, oh shit, I wish I had two tens because, <laughs> you know, but I didn't, I had a $20 bill and I gave it to him and I went into work and, and everything was okay. And I came home and I, I stopped at the mailbox on the way in and I had bills and I opened one bill after another and my eyes were getting wider and my heart was getting heavy and I had $496 worth of bills to pay and I wasn't getting paid for another three weeks and my head starts spinning and I walk in through the front door and while I was at work that day my ex-wife had come and taken the furniture. So here I was with no kids and no furniture and no money and bills and I just lost it on the floor uh, right over there behind Kenny. and. And it was just this breaking point. And all of a sudden there was a knock on the door and it was Charles. And he said, hey, uh, you've been on my heart lately. And I, I wanted to share this with you. Uh, I received it as a gift and I just wanted to pass it on to you. And I, he gave me a hug and he skipped away because skipping apparently is better than jogging. And I opened it up and it was $500. I had a $4 surplus. So I think that, I think that to me, it's that living with open hands that creates miracles. And what we're stuck in sometimes right now is is in the direness of our situation, we respond the way that we've been taught, which is to close our hands. And what we're what we're asking for, what I hear Ben asking for is we've got to expect miracles. And the only way that that can happen is if we open our hands and live in faith and service of each other. So that's my story. This has been a really serious conversation for hours, and uh, I'm not feeling super great where I'm at in my life right now, and uh, I'm feeling pretty heavy, and then we're having this really heavy conversation. But one thing that I've really gratefully learned from my mentors is that um, there has to always be a place for humor. And so I'd like to tell a story based on Seppi's story. One time, I only had $8 left, and I was walking down the street, same deal, I was like, where the hell am I going to get the money that I need to pay all this stuff? I don't know what to do. And I was walking past a uh, place that sold beer, and there was a homeless guy standing outside, and he was like, um, you know, hey, man, you got any money for me to buy a beer? And, uh, you know, usually homeless people don't ask you for money to buy a beer, right? And I was like, wow, this in my head, you know, I was like, this guy's so honest about what he wants the money for. Fortunately, unlike Seppi, who only had a $20 bill, I had eight ones. So I took the guy into the place and we both bought an old English 40. And I sat on the curb and spent my last $4 drinking a nasty 40 with a homeless guy. And the only reason that I'm telling that story right now on your show is because of how serious the last (laughs) three hours have been and that there's a need for a little bit of levity right now. Thanks. I would also like to thank Dave because I think that was the nicest way that you could call someone a bush or a shrub ever when you were responding to Alexis (laughs) and ecological niches.
as I look around the room, before I close this with some final thoughts, does anybody have anything else that they'd like to add to this conversation? Wait, there's a voice in the background. Running from the stairs. Dave, you'll have to wait. Hey, guys. My name is Stina, and I have no original thoughts and nothing interesting to say. I'm just kidding, I think. Um, So I'm new to permaculture, uh, but it's not new to me. I've been interested in it for about a decade. And I finally got to the point where I wanted to have guidance and understand how to put it into practice. And I'm really thankful for my teachers, uh, Ben Weiss and Wilson Alvarez, because of the perspective they have on it, or the perspective that I was... um, given was that it was kind of like an answer to everything and I'm really glad that the people involved aren't really coming at it from there so um, I'm learning a lot of really interesting stuff that I never thought of before thinking in new ways and uh, so just appreciate where you are in your journey because the story's just you know we're just starting things things are starting to get good right now right so let's hit that climax and and have fun okay that's all. <laughs> I just wanted to express my gratitude. This could seem heavy. I can see how you could f- feel that way about it, Ben. And uh, my experience of heaviness varies depending on how I look at it. And I've learned that sometimes when I allow, particularly if I'm in a seated position, if I allow my legs and my hips to be heavy and I really let that heaviness sink in to my body, that there's this very quiet little upwelling that happens naturally as a response to the heaviness. And if I give that some attention, it grows and it goes up my spine and it lifts my head and it lifts my heart. And there's just this response to these things. And, you know, I appreciate the feeling and the insight that we've all brought to this today and the questions and the vulnerability vulnerability is awesome and uh so thank you i'd like to thank everybody who came here and participated in this day together and though he hasn't spoken on the mic today since everyone else has referenced him i'd like to reference wilson over as myself and thank him for a conversation that we had earlier today during part of my welling anger over the place that i found myself in because he reminded me that everything that we do is from our own place that even though i'm not one to go out and to forage deep into the woods and things because that's not my place. I can still rewild myself. And that comes from part of what Matt said about dialogue. And I realized that the place that I find myself in and moving through this period of transition is that the outside story and the inside story are in conflict. And only through the process of moving towards truly and deeply my own place can I free myself from that stress and that pain and find an appropriate way forward. And I look around this room and I'd like to thank all of you for everything that you've shared today and the bits and pieces of your stories that came to me, some of the conversations we've had, because in a few hours, I'm in a completely different place from where I started this journey this morning when I arrived, a bit hectic. Dave was running late and lost in Delaware. Charles' schedule was changed that he was only going to be able to spend about an hour with us. Um, Last night in putting things together, I wasn't sure, Ben, if you were going to be here or how much of an audience we were going to have either. But I'm glad that you all came today and we're a part of this community so thank you all from the bottom of my heart for this
And that was Ben Weiss, Dave Jackie, and the audience at the second Susquehanna Permaculture Roundtable. Make sure and check out the first episode, which includes Charles Eisenstein on the panel, if you haven't heard it already. You can find out more about the panelists from this session at their respective websites, susquehannapc.com for Ben and ediblefortgardens.com for Dave. If you would like to study with Dave, he is teaching a nine-day intensive course on forest garden design from October 2nd through the 11th, 2015 at Feathered Pipe Ranch near Helena, Montana. This is the first time in three years that this course has been offered in the United States. During the all-inclusive class, students will learn how to mimic forest ecosystems that include a number of valuable characteristics, including stability and resilience to disasters. As with the recent interviews with Dave have expressed, you can also expect this course to explore the human side of design, including the social and economic elements. Participants will also have the opportunity to design multiple forest gardens, including one for the course site, as well as for the 6th Ward Forest Garden Park that is being installed in Helena, Montana. Find out more about this course at InsideEdgeDesign.com forward slash upcoming hyphen events or via the link in the show notes. So I've been resting on any kind of extended commentary about all of this that was discussed in the two round tables until after this second half came out, which even included shortening the ending of the conversation with Penny Livingston Stark, because all three dealt a great deal with that personal or inner landscape work that is becoming more and more a part of the discussion within permaculture as it is ever more both a design system and a movement. My personal work in that direction has led me to understand more fully my own niche and role. As much as I may desire to be a certain type of person who's going to be out, you know, foraging for hours every day and gardening heavily, as was indicated some in this conversation, I realize that I'm just not that person. And that trying to become that person is outside kind of the place where I'm at. Instead, I stand between the mainstream world and the permaculture world, walking uh, a middle road between the two. At the end of the day, I'm your friendly neighborhood podcast host and a teacher and someone who builds networks. I engage heavily in the social side of permaculture and explore the economic side as well. I look at design process and the intellectual side of things and do some on-the-ground design and planting of perennials, but I'm not a heavy gardener. It's funny sometimes how hard it was to come to terms with that, to accept who I was as a person. But the more I do so, the easier this work becomes, and the more that I can fill the niche that I'm in. The three hours or so of material that were recorded between the two roundtables in the interview with Penny, and the conversations that I've held with others in the time since, it really left me in a place where the answers to the questions at hand led to more questions and more conversations. With Alexis and her interest in building community in Reading, Pennsylvania, my desire to find a right livelihood and to turn the podcast into a full-time career, and how I was kind of sabotaging myself in trying to do so, which came to a head because of what Charles said about ethical purity, and the imagery set forth about being a good person, and how, if that's what your view of yourself is, then that's what you become. And then two days after all this, I had a big conversation with Will and Eli and Jono, some of the local permaculture practitioners, in person, while at the Millersville Native Plant Conference, And we talked about many of the things covered in the last few podcast episodes, what it means to live right with yourself, to be honest with yourself and others, and how we can find sanity and make it work in this insane world, 
which through that conversation moved us to talk about community and how there are all these kinds of structures that make it hard to really live in community with each other because of zoning and ordinances in various cities and suburban areas and the peri-urban and the spaces in between where now more than half of humanity calls home and what we could do about it. We started talking about how expensive it is to live individually between rent here and a mortgage there because of those external costs versus looking at places where if we could come together and buy land, how much less expensive it would be. But even then, the hurdles that we face. And it got me thinking about what it would be like to build a community like that. And as I looked back through the responses to the listener poll from a while back, there were recurring themes that advertisers are okay by you, the audience. If that means that I can keep doing this, for many people, the podcast has become a vital resource within the permaculture community, which was in many ways hard for me to understand or accept just how much this means to many of you because of that conflict between the capitalist gift economy and my need to make a living and also being in this office of mine sitting alone that I could hear the words coming in, but because I didn't necessarily come from the most positive or encouraging background to be able to hear your message. With that also, many of you have said that you're looking for more than just a podcast to be behind. You're also looking for a project, something that can create and show change in the world. And I would sit with a notebook for days on end and just write that question at the top and scribble and scribble. And it was just doodles and never really an idea. There was nothing that came to mind of what could work. And so, as you heard me express at the beginning of this conversation, my frustration and anger built. And during my youth, for a long time, that kind of anger was something that was consuming and destructive. Something that Byron Joel and I talked a little bit candidly about in our conversation together. But I find that the older that I get, the more that that anger is not something outward, but becomes an internal source of energy and creativity. All of that allowed me to step back a bit and see the forest and the trees and my own path through it. As a result, coming out of all this, I've begun approaching certain individuals within the community, searching for appropriate advertisers and sponsors to turn the podcast into something more, because I realize that I can't continue to try to do things the way that I was. And also that I've kind of reached a limit for my personal time and need to be able to hire an assistant in addition to finding a place to live and enough income to be able to transition to being a single parent. And you can read into that as you will, um, but gives you an idea of, of some of the things that are happening for me right now. And I'm also working with a number of retailers and others in order to add more value for recurring Patreon members. Currently, there are 10% discounts available at Field and Forest Products and Permi Kids for folks who join there at $5 or more per month. But that little bit is really just about the show. The more interesting part comes with a different project that developed out of these conversations. And it comes down to one way or another, I am building a permaculture center and community that can focus on research and education in a completely above board and legal manner that in turn becomes an incubator and model for others who are interested in this kind of work in their community wherever they live in the world. And I want to locate it in an area near other cities and communities where there are ordinances and zoning issues that need to be resolved in order to create this center and community 
to solve some of the underlying problems and provide examples for others, since everything that we seem to want to do is illegal, and there are structures in place that keep us from living in community with one another, doing the things that we want to do to bring change into the world. And at the moment, there's a piece of property in my township that is currently available for purchase that is nearly perfect for this purpose, for this project. It's over 15 acres with a portion that's zoned commercial and several buildings on site, including a multi-bedroom house. And the rest that's not commercial is high-density residential that could be used to create multiple small homes and allow dozens of individuals and families to come together and live there. It's also near multiple interstates and highways for easy over-the-road transportation. There's an international airport a short distance away, as well as a train depot and bus station. It is also within day-trip distance from Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Baltimore, Maryland, Washington, D.C., or New York City, New York. It also happens that I'm also already involved in local politics as I sit on the Parks and Recreation Board for the township and know many of the gatekeepers and have been involved in changing ordinances already. With this idea, I've already begun working with my law firm to investigate the possibility and have started the conversation with others in the Susquehanna permaculture community to keep the energy going and build the vision and ideas while I work on some of the nuts and bolts details. As a sort of sanity check, I've also reached out to the Possibility Alliance and the push to see if this kind of a project within a pre-existing township near so many resources and people is a reasonable thing to do. And the feedback that they shared was that this is the kind of example site that's needed because it already exists where people are and we can meet them where they're at and go into their communities and they can come to ours and see what's there. And that leaders, both political and non-governmental from throughout the region can be invited to drop in when it's convenient for them and see what is happening and hear multiple perspectives and thoughts from the individuals and families working and in the long-term living on site and what it is that we're doing and how it makes a difference. But I can't do this alone and need the broader permaculture community to raise the funds to make this happen. Being me, of course, I want to do it in a different way and not run a GoFundMe or other electronic crowdfunding campaign. Let's do this in a low-tech, high-touch approach that can look for the people who can make the biggest difference. Rather than casting a broad net with a shallow reach, let's go looking directly for those individuals who can make the biggest difference. If you're in a place to assist with this launch and know individuals who are allies that would support something like this, call them. Let them know that you care about this kind of work to help create the world that we want to live in and ask that person on the other end of the phone if they can give to this project. Or to go even more low tech, write those people of influence that you can think of a letter in your own handwriting expressing your desire to see something like this come forth into the world and what they'll do to make it happen. If you'd like, you can give them the show at the permaculturepodcast.com address to send something electronically via PayPal, or give them the mailing address for the show if they prefer to do something by post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Also, spread the word and let people know what's happening what we are doing here together. I've included a link in the show notes for a Facebook group that was started if you want to follow along with what's happening and see how it's developing. Or if you're involved in a project like this somewhere else 
and you'd like to be included in the conversation or just learn more about what we're doing so that you might be able to replicate it where you are, ask to join and we'll get you approved. If you have any questions about this or anything else shared in the last couple of conversations or in my notes, give me a call, 717-827-6266 or email show at permaculturepodcast.com. From here, I'll be a guest instructor at Jude Hobbs Teacher Training in cooperation with Beyond Organic Design the evening of Sunday, June 28th, 2015 at the Commons in Brooklyn. I believe that evening discussion is open to the public, so if you are in the area and want to stop by, my lecture is from 7.30pm to 9pm. More information about that is at beyondorganicdesign.org. There you can also contact the organizers if you have any questions. August 20th through the 23rd, I'll be at the Radical Gathering in Bowling Green, Kentucky, running a permaculture question and answer session on Friday afternoon, a community vision workshop on Saturday morning, and delivering the Saturday night keynote address. Eric Perro of The Push will also be there as the Friday night keynote speaker. If things go well, I'm also planning to stop by their community a couple of days before the Radical Gathering to visit because they just bought some land in Kentucky about three hours east of Bowling Green. We may be doing a a lecture or a workshop while I'm there. More details as it comes together. But anyway, if you're in the area, come out and join in the fun of workshops, live music, and a whole bunch of people gathering together to explore how to build resilient communities at the Radical Gathering. Radical, R-A-D-I-C-L-E, gathering.org. September 12th, 2015, I'll be at the Riverside Project recording a live permaculture roundtable. September 18th, I'm looking to return to the Mother Earth News Fair in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania, to check out this year's event. I'm also in touch with the organizers of the Urban Permaculture Conference that will be held at the Grove School of Engineering, Steinman Building, in New York, New York, from October 23rd through the 25th, to be there both to cover the event and to present a workshop. And I'll post a link for more information to that in the show notes. You can also find it by searching Urban Permaculture Conference, New York. If you're an organizer who would like me to come cover or speak at your event, or if you're a business owner who would like to sponsor an episode and share information about your business or upcoming event, drop me a line through the usual means. That'll bring this show to a close. Until the next time, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.